Hi, I'm Trevor Chow Fraser, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about Edmonton, Alberta, a Miskwachewaskayugan in Treaty 6 and Métis Region 4. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and we figure out the answers together. Let's Find Out is a proud partner of Taproot Edmonton, a local journalism initiative driven by powerful curiosity. Visit taprootedmonton.ca for local news, podcasts, and more. On this season of Let's Find Out, we're digging into questions about parks and natural spaces. And this episode begins at the end of June with a longtime friend of the show, Kyla Tichkowski. She lives in a small blue bungalow north of downtown, and she invited me over to talk about her question. I already had a plan for how we might find the answer, and it involves a trip to Edmonton's Larch Sanctuary. So it's fitting that I would meet her first in her own little urban nature sanctuary. Kyla's yard is the most amazing garden slash food forest slash really a park that I've ever seen. It's a jungle of berry bushes, cherry trees, clover, thistles, Virginia creeper, and more. Ooh, and some of my Saskatoon berries are ripe. So when you texted, I was in there. Oh yeah. Such from right there. I've actually never seen a Saskatoon. Well, I'm not sure I know what a Saskatoon is. <laughs> okay, you know what? It's like, okay. yes. <laughs> So these are Saskatoon, okay. Yeah. I think their leaves are one of the prettiest things about them. But you should, okay, so these ones are the ripest ones I've got. Somebody told me, their grandmas told them, you can tell when a berry's ripe when the birds start to eat them. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the ripest ones are bird-pecked. But if you grab one of these dark ones. But they're better mm. when they're fully ripe. But if you wait till they're fully ripe, you might miss them. The, the birds got them. Yes. <laughs> Honeyberry. Cool. Half the birds got them all this year. Uh, but it was really weird because I think of the, the early heat and stuff. <laughs> oh, and you got cherries? Mm-hmm. This is like the University of Saskatchewan did um, some prairie hardy called the Romance cultivars. And this one is, oh, what is it? Like yeah. Cupid? <laughs> yeah. Something like that. And But there's a Romeo, a Juliet, and they're all like romantic names, but they're bred to be prairie hardy. One of the things I think is one of the funniest um, ratings they have is like the fruit to pit ratio. Oh yeah. The fruit to pit <laughs> ratio is high. So yeah. because with the real prairie cherries, which I have back there, it's really low. So you get big pit, <laughs> small fruit like the nightmare avocado. Right, right. <laughs> the shed at the back of her yard features a beautiful painted mural. It's a kind of triptych showcasing iconic local wildlife. Isn't amazing? And the, I love that mural. Me too. AJ, did, you, did you paint that? No, AJ Loudon. This is my 40th birthday present to myself as I got AJ oh. Loudon, who's from Edmonton, to paint it. And it's like an ode to Edmonton. This is the, the hair, which we have living, like there was one living in my yard for several years in a row. Yeah. And there's honeybee, which is not from here, but, and then the ghost magpie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he, came, and he came and he visited my yard and he hung up my yard and took photos of different plants and stuff and then put those in there and he put honeycomb up in the sky. And... A great birthday present for yourself. Yes. Yeah. This mural with its charismatic fauna may prove ironic later, but that's not what we're here for. Do you want your notebook and stuff while I'm up here? I don't need my notebook. Okay. Wanna, I'll come sit over there with you. Yeah. It is... There's like a soundtrack, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Maybe, do you want to sit out front? Yeah. Or? Yeah. The dogs will bark more, but we'll, we'll try it. Okay. We relocate to her front step and sit down to dig into Carla's question. Hey, buddies. <coughs> this way. Oh, we're not going for a walk, guys. We're just going to stay here. Sorry. Cool. Well, so, uh, as you know, our season's about parks and natural spaces in the city. And, um... As the season has gone on, we've been yes. talking about parks uh, from different angles. Um, but a lot of what we've been talking about has been saving land for people, human people. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I think your question kind of jumped out at us because it was about uh, saving land for other types of life, the 99.9% yeah. <laughs> of life, which is not human. Yeah. So, can you... Can you um, I know you probably don't remember exactly what you asked, but would you be able to kind of paraphrase what you were kind of wondering about? Yeah, um, I work with uh, a number of, of scientists, of um, like um, natural natural history scientists, and um, and one of them is a lichenologist, and one of them is an ornithologist, and um, I, I am aware that much of the funding for um, wildlife research and observation goes to ornithology because birds are visible and pretty and exciting and accessible. Um, and lichen doesn't get near the same amount of funding, but lichen is a much more powerful bioindicator of the health of a, of an, of a biome or an ecosystem. Um, and yet the money that is going towards the birds doesn't tell us as much at all, right? And that's that's the science end of it. But I find that really compelling and really intriguing. And I also personally have, before I knew this, love to look at lichen. It's so pretty, it's so variable, um, and the colors are amazing, and iPhones are incredible at taking photos of small things, and like they're just like these lovely little landscapes all into themselves, and I, I think you know if we could if we could find a way to engage people in lichen watching, right? Like there are a few parks, there are a few yeah. parks in and around Edmonton that are really accessible yeah. that are bird sanctuaries, mm -hmm. and people go there to look mm -hmm. at birds. But there's not anything that is a lichen sanctuary or a mushroom sanctuary or something like that. And yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah. yeah. Do you um. Yeah, so you, you do go out into the city and, like, you go looking for lichens? Is that something you do? I do go looking for lichens sometimes when I'm with my very good friend who is a lichenologist. <laughs> Specifically, we've gone out to find particular ones or to check certain sites to see what's <clears throat> happening there now. But myself, even if I'm not with her, when I'm out, I look at lichen. Okay. I might not go out for it, but... There are never interpretive signs along the trails that are like, hey, this is what a lichen is. And in this area, this is one of the only places in, in Alberta that you can find this lichen. What, what, kind of, um, what kind of parks or natural spaces are you attracted to? Ones where you can't see roads and buildings and, you know, Western civilization things so um i like wooded areas i really like it if you can't hear traffic noise um but but mostly um i'm attracted to 
wooded areas. So, so how, how easy is it to find places like that away from buildings or traffic noise? How easy is it to find something like that in the city? Finding wooded areas that are quiet is shockingly easy in Edmonton, right? Like I can, I can bike to a few within 15 minutes from here. And uh, if I'm willing to hop in the car, I can get to somewhere. I can let my dogs off leash legally and run around. I don't let them do that if it's not allowed. Um, yeah. And then you just get a few blocks away from the streets downtown into the valley and you're lost. Well, you're not really, but you feel like you are. So it's great. There's a big dog park by the zoo. And uh, when the river is at the right height, you can walk along the river um, if the river's low. And I love doing that because you get around the bend and you can't see any human-made stuff. And the shore's there and there's all this stuff happening there. There are wasps who have nested into the sandy banks. There is, you know, driftwood exposed. Um, and it's the best. It just, it just feels like another world. And since I've had my dog, I go out to those places a lot more often than I would for myself because seeing the joy that it brings to him makes me very happy and it reminds me of how happy it makes me too. But he gets the zoomies, the water zoomies. Like when he touches the river, it's like, it just like enlivens him and he zooms, zooms, zooms and then he rolls in the silt and he gets terribly dirty and I don't even care because it's, it's so joyful and I laugh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's so weird that dogs can't laugh, but. <laughs> I mean, so just to our question that Chris and I were thinking about, like these are parks like Laurier Park, McKinnon Ravine, that have been set aside for. Human use. Human use. I mean, when we talk to the parks managers, yeah. like they're, they're very clear about the priorities and how they relate to human enjoyment. Um, and you are enjoying it, but it, but it sounds like it's not because of. <laughs> it's not the I, park. I it's not the park infrastructure that yeah. I enjoy, right? It's not the paved trails because I'm, I'm really fortunate that I don't have any mobility concerns, so I can go on a, on like I can follow a deer trail, and I can walk along that. Um, and I don't care about playgrounds, and I, there, there's a lot about parks that I don't care about. You know, shade structures. I can go into the trees, and there that is there. <laughs> That's shade. Yeah, picnic tables. There are lots of rocks along the river that you can sit on. And the picnic tables are great, but if I have my choice, yeah. I'd like to sit on a rock by the river and eat my lunch. So are the places you're going to for not, like being preserved for natural purposes? For nature? <laughs> I think that I think these places are being preserved for people to ride their bikes and walk and run. And, um, you know, I think COVID really shone a light on, on how important these places are for people's mental and emotional health to, to get out and to move their bodies and to breathe in the air and be surrounded by, by plants and, and, and bird life and sounds. Um, but when I, use, when I use parks that are built for, you know, human recreation, I wind up getting um, preoccupied a lot with um, with the question that the people come here to have fun, like people come here to enjoy the outdoors, but the activities that a lot of these people engage in are detrimental. And I'm like, this is this paradox, right? Like these people go here because they love it, but the things that they do hurt it. And I don't know if perhaps they're not aware 
or if it's just um, what do they what do you call it the the cognitive dissonance that, that we all have to have to exist in, in the world. But you know, like skidoos. Yeah, yeah, like what kind of things are you talking about? Like when 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 um, people ride skidoos, it compacts the snow right along the the tracks, and uh, there's all this life below the snow at ground level that thrives and survives um, because it's protected by this insulative layer of snow. But when that layer of snow is compacted, that life that is below there gets completely compromised if if not eradicated. <laughs> so, yeah, like, yeah, skidooing's fun, you go fast, it's breathtaking and, and all of that, but I don't know if our fun is worth doing that kind of damage, like, for fun? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah one of the things that's always struck me, because I'm not from here originally, um, it wasn't until I came to Edmonton that where I saw people just having campfires, like, in their backyard. Yeah. And, like, I don't know how that's a thing here. Uh, it's safe, obviously. The city hasn't burned down. <laughs> but it is, um, it's weird that you, like, you go outside, it's a beautiful summer night, and then you, like, fill it up with smoke, and then you're like, I can't breathe anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what was the point of going outside? And, like, when you go uh, camping in Jasper, in the huge, if you go to the huge campgrounds in Jasper. Oh, my God. Where it's just, like, hey. a haze, like like downtown Toronto haze over the campground. You're like, we did this to ourselves by having all these campfires. Yeah, and it's not yeah. like, I went I went camping earlier this week to Elk <laughs> Island and it was 26 degrees and there was no need for a campfire. And I felt myself thinking, well, maybe I'll do it because it feels cozy and it's part of what camping is. And, and mm-hmm. I, you know, this like nostalgic urge in me wanted to do it. And then this practical piece of me was like, no, it's not necessarily at all, and we can sit around and still have fun, cozy chats. Yeah. Yeah. So much we get just stuck in the way things, the way we do things, and this is what you do when you go camping and you have s'mores, and I think s'mores are gross. I don't like them, <laughs> so I don't need a fire. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to try and answer your question. I know that your question's, you know... Your specific question is, why aren't we seeking out lichens instead of birds? And I don't know that we have an answer to that. But I think we can talk to the broader context of, um, you know, what types of areas are we protecting in the city? And how, how can we make it so that people can find more of these spaces where they can get away from the noise of traffic, get away from the trees? But then, or not get away from the trees, get into the trees, away from the buildings, away from the traffic. Um, but then to your question, like, how can we do that without then undermining the protection of that natural space? Um, yeah, so I think we can answer some kind of question around that. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and um, I think one of my, my wonders is, is, could people, would people be as interested in lichen and mushrooms and these tiny things if they knew more about them and if the people who are experts in them had the resources and the training to communicate in an engaged way about them, right? And like lichens are fascinating if you have the opportunity to talk to somebody who is passionate about them and knows about them and 
could people be as interested in lichens as other things and could people appreciate things that are literally in their backyard and feel like you don't necessarily have to go to a park where nature is being preserved mm -hmm. to enjoy these things like and if people can take pleasure in these smaller things how can that cascade into supporting more research and more knowledge and thus more preservation or more um, mm. effective and efficient preservation. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm, I don't know, like it's so hard to s capture that in like one tidy sentence, you know? <clears throat> cool. cool. Well, let's bring that question to our trip tomorrow. And uh, where is yeah. the Larch place? Yeah, so we're going to the Larch sanctuary. So if you go down, uh, it's like on 23rd Avenue, mm -hmm. when you're going towards... Okay, let me cut myself off here. Uh, I didn't do a good job. <laughs> right now, I'm going to give you a proper introduction to the Larch Sanctuary. If you've driven west on 23rd Avenue, you probably know this place where the road jogs down into the valley. North of the avenue is the University of Alberta's McTaggart Sanctuary. South is the more recent Larch Sanctuary. It's 59 acres of undeveloped forest right inside the city from the top of the bank down to White Mud Creek, just upstream of where it joins Black Mud Creek. Large Sanctuary was created when the Poole family sold the land to a property developer. Most of that land is now a neighborhood of mini mansions and condos, but Melcor Developments gifted the Creek Valley to the city of Edmonton as an environmental reserve. Then the Edmonton and Area Land Trust entered the picture. Working with the city and the developer, they got a conservation easement, which should protect the land in perpetuity. The land trust is why I thought the large sanctuary would be the right place to try to answer Kyla's question. Megan Jackson, a conservation coordinator with the land trust, would meet us there to share her perspective. Also, remember that good friend, the lichenologist that Kyla mentioned? That's Diane Hoagland, a researcher with the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute. And I had arranged for her to join us too to show us some of the fine lichens that she has uncovered. So I fill Kyla in on the plan, and we agree to meet up the following evening in the Larch Sanctuary. That's where we'll start up right after this short break. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much, and thanks for the mint water. You're welcome. And thanks for introducing me to your little pals. Thanks for being patient with them. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to rain at some point tomorrow, but... Well, it's supposed to rain today. So we're here in the burbs, on the edge of the forest. I've got Elliot with me and we're looking for the group. Hello! Well, that was really loud. Do you have oh, hi. Trevor? I'm Trevor, okay, yes, wonderful. hi. I'm Megan. <laughs> Excellent. Hi, Megan. Nice to meet you. You too. Yeah. I, I thought I saw you and then everyone disappeared. Yes, we decided so like... to start taking a look at the trail system. So. Okay, that's all right. Yeah. Uh, this is Elliot. Hello, nice to meet you. Hi. <laughs> um, yeah, so Megan, so you're a... Uh, I'm a conservation coordinator with the Edmonton and Area Land Trust. Okay, cool. Yeah. 
And uh, what does that mean? Uh, so, um, so I guess first of all, the organization itself uh, is a registered charity and nonprofit. So we are separate from um, any sort of government organization, yeah. um, and we are run by a board of directors. So, um, in my role, I am um, doing a lot of stewardship work on our lands to make sure that they are good habitat for wildlife, and occasionally doing some outreach as well. So. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you doing some outreach with us today. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. So. Um, our, our other fellows are here as well, and they've just started on the trail a little bit. So it's, I don't know how far you want to go. Um, there is, this is essentially a deer trail here. Um, it's not a maintained trail, and it does, we eventually get to an oxbow lake. Um, the main access right now is uh, they're replacing the bridge, so. I'm okay with that. Okay. Are you okay with that, Elliot? What? <laughs> you okay going into the forest this way? That's where I wanted to go. All right. Like this way? Yeah. Yep, that way. All right, let's okay. get started. We plunge into the woods, following a steep dirt path downward. Whoa. The early evening light dimmed by the shade of old growth trees. Hello? <coughs> These are our friends. Yeah. Like walk on. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Elliot, did you Hello. just finish school this week? Yeah. That's, that's great fun. Hi, Hi, Diane. Hi. Sorry. Just oh, getting okay. into Lichen Land. <laughs> Good to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. I'm a little surprised for you. We're really going downhill. <laughs> After a few minutes, the ground levels off. Elliot and Kyla have already run out along a grassy path into the water. Across the way, trees rise up the bank against a clear blue sky. Yep, that way. This is our first look at the Lake. Elliot spotted it first. Elliot scared it. I spotted it going right into the water, like right, like I heard something. Look, I saw blub blub. I saw blub 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 over there. Oh 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 oh! Oh no, that's a duck. But still exciting. It's not a duck. It's a different kind of bird. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this um, this is part of the Oxbow Lake. Oxbow Lakes um, have a U shape, and we're pretty close to the center of it right now. So you can kind of see it curving around there. So this was originally the path of White Mud Creek um, many, many, many years ago. Um, and when we, if we walk over and go and see the creek as well, you'll see the creek is now significantly lower because the creek has eroded away the ground beneath it, and the stagnant Oxbow Lake has stayed the same. Huh. So. Um, they're great habitat. Basically any uh, source of water is excellent habitat for all sorts of animals, um, different types of plants. Um, so really this is a very cool feature of Larch Sanctuary and a great um, area to see all sorts of different kinds of wildlife. And I can see quite a few little songbirds from here. We saw the, uh, the golden eye diving, we saw the beaver. So there's all sorts of things that will make use of this, this area. That's really cool. How, how far away is the White Mud Creek now? So not very far. Um, I would say um, potentially something around 50 meters. Uh, it's uh, straight uh, down in this direction from us. Uh, so we can absolutely get there pretty quickly and, uh, and take a look at both. Um, there are some uh, steep slopes, so we'll just be a little careful when we're in that area, so. We don't absolutely have to. Yeah. <laughs> was it um, like was it on purpose created? Did no, they, did this, they on this, purpose cut off the old creek? No, this happens naturally. Um, so you can find them 
you know, I imagine all over the world. Um, and it's just because uh, the way that a stream erodes um, is always on the outside of a bend. So when, when the stream, as it gets more and more wiggly over time, two of those points that are eroding will eventually meet and the water will instead go straight because that's now the quicker way to flow. Um, and then it, it, because that's now quicker, this whole loop is no longer needed and is just left. So it just happens naturally for through erosion. Um, okay, maybe we'll just ask one question here. Okay. So Kyla, do you want to ask your main question of Megan, which is about lichens versus birds? <laughs> so I've, I've observed parks in the area and even like probably right in Edmonton that are bird sanctuaries. Yeah. And um, I understand from some of my very knowledgeable science passionate nerd friends that um, lichens are a better bioindicator than birds, but birds get uh, a lot of the airtime. Um, so are there any lichen sanctuaries around? And is that a thing that could happen? Is that a thing we could get people into? So that is uh, definitely a great question. I'm afraid I'm not aware of any uh, lichen sanctuaries at this time. Um, this is uh, really a, a relatively well-known problem um, in that uh, what gets the most attention for conservation is the charismatic species. Uh, so unfortunately, lichens aren't charismatic enough to enough people. I'm not, I'm not, not saying that they aren't <laughs> charismatic, just to enough people to attract the attention that's needed to help conserve them. As really say, um, say an organization like EALT, we rely on donations, we rely on public support. So if there isn't um, that interest, we can't really use that as a main push to protect that area. Now there is a balance. We certainly work to protect areas that are both ecologically significant as well as have that uh, that attention and push to, pr to protect them. But that would be why you aren't seeing specifically areas that are protected for lichen. It's just uh, not charismatic enough to enough people, unfortunately. I would love if it was. So. <laughs> what, what is the most charismatic creature? to your knowledge. <laughs> I think that's got to depend on who you ask. Uh, certainly uh, on a large scale, I think uh, caribou probably uh, are, uh, win a lot of points for being charismatic. Yeah. Uh, here uh, in uh, Edmonton and surrounding regions, I would say moose are pretty high on the list. And a lot of times, I know I, I'm a bit biased because I really like birds, but uh, certainly uh, different bird species probably also play into that as well. Yeah. Um, but I think for Edmonton itself, probably the moose would be on the top of my list for uh, the most charismatic and we do actually use the moose uh, image a lot in uh, our, uh, our outreach as well so <laughs> I mean Kyla I guess you yourself in your backyard you've got the ghost magpie and yeah. and the prairie hare yeah. those are pretty charismatic <laughs> they are <clears throat> and a bee and the bee <laughs> no Nathan Fillion <laughs> no I would think for Edmonton oh he stays yeah. in the house <laughs> yeah, <okay>. no uh, <laughs> <laughs> that branch is moving yeah. on its own. That's because I think there's a face <laughs> attached. beaver. <laughs> I knew it. Midnight snack. I knew it was awkward. Some trees, branches. <laughs> Here's a fun fact. We're going to connect it to the beavers. There are there are tiny little calicioid lichens and fungi that only grow on old wood that was cut down by beavers, on beaver scars oh. in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Cool. How did the lichens know? It's a really, you know, it's a fascinating question. These things are like, 
The essence of them is floating around in the atmosphere, going from continent to continent, and then if one of them happens to land on just the right home, then, you know, they, they become the, the thing that we see. <laughs> but most, most of the biomass of lichen is probably in the tiny propagules that are everywhere, like in our soil, on our trees. Spores are tiny, what we call ceridia. It's like dust, just tiny bits of lichen or um, fungal threads and alga. Fungal threads? Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, it went under with Did the whole like branch. A, like a summer Where's it going to come up? You can see the breast. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny it's doing these Is it taking it apart? Because it comes up with smaller pieces, it seems like. Oh, there. Yeah. Made it's, it under. This beaver is oh, pretty curious. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> oh, look, Elliot. Hi, beaver. This poor beaver. There's so many people here. Hi, beaver. Okay, seeing that beaver was so cool, not just for the kids and the dogs, <laughs> but what the heck, this is just the problem we were talking about. Charismatic creatures hogging all the attention. So as we turn our backs to the Oxbow Lake and head back into the woods, I thought we'd better put our focus on the life form we'd really come to see. Lichens. I don't remember which book or which kid. Diane, maybe uh, Kyla gave me a bit of an introduction to you yesterday. But could you maybe introduce yourself? Charismatically. Uh, charismatically. <laughs> no, my name's Diane, and I'm a lichenologist, and I work for a provincial biodiversity monitoring program. One of the things that came out of COVID, like, we go all over the province. But during COVID, our field program was shut down, and, of course, we started to explore mo lo more locally. And four to five Albertans live in a major city. Um, and so you have a huge potential audience of people who can be interested or educated or kind of have those blinkers taken off to what is a charismatic, you know, megafauna, <laughs> megaflora. <laughs> like I'm looking at some beautiful patches of peltigera here and most people would just see that as a batch of dead leaves looking thing, you know, cryptic, dry, crusty, but yeah. that, that colony is probably mm -hmm. older than Elliot. <laughs> so it kind of brings you a sense of appreciation of how long that's persisted here. And these naturalized parks in Edmonton, I think, are really special. And that's, that's why we have such a good lichen diversity, because lichens, each of them are persnickety in their own way. <laughs> they all have their own habitat requirements. And when we have a, a diverse and complex uh, forest like this, like we're standing on the edge of a clearing. So we have this beautiful light coming through. And in the morning, there'll be more dew here than there is under the tree. And you have the mosses, <laughs> all the beautiful veg. It's all creating like unique little houses for different species of lichens. So we know in Edmonton, there's 114 species that we know of. Like that's a 10th of the province's flora right within the Edmonton boundary. And 80% of those are in these special parks. So for me, even though we're not trying to conserve these areas <laughs> for lichen, um, because Edmonton has had, kind of had a focus, I think probably through part of the land trust and also partly through some enlightened uh, land planners, we have more natural areas, areas that we're not just mowing and manicuring, uh, but we're allowing them to be a little bit more diverse and wild. Yeah. Okay, if this is lichen, yeah. I, I don't know what a lichen is. 
<laughs> I, can you just, what's a lichen, what's a moss, what's a, you mentioned like spores, like mold, yeah. like, yeah. what's, what's happening here? <laughs> so lichens are really cool because they're not one thing. They're not like birds or mammals. They're not all related to each other. A lichen is basically a fungus that has taken up a relationship with a photosynthetic partner. So something like an alga or a cyanobacterium, like when we think about, you know, nostoc growing on the edge of ponds. Some fungi have managed to set up house with them and they make a brand new thing, an emergent thing that we call a lichen. So they've evolved multiple times over history. They're not all related to each other. Um, it's really like a group of, of, a community of organisms that are, that are kind of living a lifestyle that results in the thing we call a lichen. And that's so esoteric and philosophical and it doesn't help people, but it's, it's why lichenologists still are asking the question about what is a lichen? What is the fundamental definition of it? And how do you even scientifically name something that is not one thing? It's a minimum of two or three different known partners, you know? So it's complex, but at its core, you know, they're, they're, they're kind that, of chameleons. Lichen, right? Yeah, this is one kind of lichen. Okay. This is called a hammered shield lichen. And so the way we humans break these down is we break them into different kinds of shapes or growth forms. And this is what we call a leafy lichen. If we want to see a much bigger leafy lichen, this is a peltidra. Oh, that. Yeah, okay. aren't they beautiful? Peltidra. Yeah, so I, I thought you were talking about all this moss. No, yeah, people confuse moss and lichen all the time right. because they share the same house. They share a lot of microhabitats, but this beautiful thing is stabilizing the soil, it's catching moisture, it's fixing nitrogen from the air, making it available for, uh, for all the rest of us that can't fix nitrogen. Um, and it could be, like I said, as old as Elliot, this little leaf. So, yeah. <laughs> and you know this in part because you did a survey of Edmonton's lichen? Can you, yeah, can you tell me how you did that? Sure, um, we had a, a class of University of Alberta students that was keen to learn a little bit more about what lichens are telling us about the environment. Um, so we did a big grid across the city. Every one and a half kilometers, we basically plopped a point down within the Anthony Hende, and we ended up going to, to about 160 different sites across the city. And at every site, we would look at five trees and we'd record every lichen we could find. And you wouldn't think, you know, that boulevard tree outside your house is housing a diversity of lichens, but you can find 10, 20 species just on the boulevard trees in the city. So it was really, it was really fun. We found new species to the province um, that hadn't been recorded here before, just literally in our backyards. <laughs> Not just figuratively, literally in our backyards, new things to be discovered. But the river valleys are really where the uh, most of our diversity is found because you have these layers of micro, like little habitats for them to occupy. That kind of, um Brings me to a question maybe for Megan. Um, Kyla, I visited Kyla yesterday and she has an amazing yard with like basically a, a garden park <laughs> on its own. Um, and uh, Diane's talking about finding lichens on the road boulevards. So what's the, um, if we can find that kind of biodiversity, you know, within the more urban fabric of the city, what's the importance of you know, carving out these spaces and then protecting like pure forest or pure valley, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's absolutely a great question. Um, so that's very true. Um, we can find species, we'll find places to live anywhere. Um, but 
we find that some species are more um, affected by disturbance than others. So while we have, say, a little bit over 100 of those species of lichens in the city, there's probably then the other 300 that might need a more mature forest potentially. Or no, so even yeah. in Edmonton, we have yeah. about 114 we know about, yeah. and 80% of those occur in our river valley. Mm -hmm. So the boulevard trees are hosting a community of lichens, but it's more restricted. Yeah. It's a little bit more homogenous, <laughs> more similar to each other. Um, and then when you get into these river valley parks, that's where you kind of get your burst of diversity. So you're absolutely right. There's special things here that you're not going to find in your lawn or on your boulevard tree because it's, it's just a very even, you know, dry, exposed environment. And there's only so many lichens that like that kind of house. But in this river valley park, we have so many layers of habitat here for them to occupy, you get a lot more diversity here. So it's, it's, it's not meant to be preserved for them, um, but it's, it's doing the job kind of indirectly, which is really cool. And so um, I think that kind of um, shows a little bit about the value of different types of protected space. Mm -hmm. Anything from, can we have simply just some trees planted in our neighborhoods will still contribute something to some creatures. Um, and then, but if we can have an entire large area of land that has minimal human access and is primarily undisturbed habitat, we will have more diversity in that place as well. And perhaps um, those small spaces in our yards, they'll begin to provide more habitat for the creatures that need less space. So mm -hmm. pollinators, uh, bees, moths, butterflies, all sorts of things, they, they'll be the ones first making use of that habitat. Whereas we've still got uh, these large spaces for maybe larger animals. Say, I'm sure you heard about the moose downtown. Well, the moose can't really survive downtown, but if there was a nice garden, um, then we could certainly have bees or other insects surviving there. So that that's another good reason to have our, our small backyard spaces be very natural as well, as they still are providing habitat, even if it's not for the big charismatic moose. I actually haven't heard of this moose. Can you, what, what, what happened? Uh, all, all I saw was a lot of pictures on social media of a moose running past uh, Roger's place pretty oh well. Uh, and he did, he did make his way to the River Valley, so he's okay now. But uh, he did have a little adventure through downtown early uh, one morning recently. So. Wow. <laughs> The sun is getting lower now, but we still want to go further into the forest to see the White Mud Creek. As the sound of running water gets closer, Diane begins to delve off the beaten path. She's crawling over logs and ducking under trees, inviting me to take a look at all the different lichens she can spy. This is a very happy lichen place we've just, just come across. It's coated in beautiful gray leafy lichens. They're way more abundant here right next to the creek than they were further up. Yeah. We're getting some of that moisture coming off the water, lights filtering through these partly dead spruces, and it's setting up the perfect little uh, colony, <laughs> little community for these gray folios lichens, gray leafy lichens. It's very stunning. It's really pretty once you really start to appreciate them. I really do have the advantage though of studying them under the microscope all day. So yeah. it's like, you know when you see like a really bad picture of somebody you love and you, re you recognize it's a bad picture, <laughs> but you still recognize the beauty in it. This yeah. is like, lichens are, are, I admit they can be hard to appreciate with the naked eye. <laughs> they need some magnification sometimes. So when you're, when you're looking for lichens, like uh, on your survey, yeah. what, is it, what does that entail? Do you collect samples or what, sometimes what you have doing? to because they're so tiny so, yeah. <laughs> if, if you look on this branch Trevor and you see like tiny flecks of yellow 
Those are little teeny tiny lichens that we call crustose lichens. Huh. So they're just a tiny little, almost like a little fruiting body that gives off spores and the rest of the body is embedded in the tree itself. So there's almost huh. nothing for our, our yeah. you know, limited human eyes to see. Um, so sometimes we have to collect those, but we, we do try to avoid collecting when we're in parks in the city because we want to leave them be. Um, but even just a little magnifying glass can make the difference between being like, yeah. what is that? To being, able to being able to identify it to species. I mean, it looks like, I mean, it looks like there's like three or four lichens oh, there, right? yeah, way more than that even. Ooh, and okay. the one that people really overlook, we call the smelly mellies. <laughs> the smelly mellies, they're kind of this baby poo brown. And everything that's not bark and is kind of brownish here is a smelly melly. So <laughs> they're, uh, they're in a genus Melanolixia or Melanohalia. And they're brown and they're cool and they're really fun under the microscope. But admittedly, they kind of are a little uh, underwhelming when you look at them with the naked eye. And they smell bad? No, they don't, but they're really hard to identify, especially for new students. So my students always are like, they're forewarned that the, the brown lichens are going to be tricky. Yeah, compared this to these beautiful orange lichens that are kind of interspersed through here. And you know what's kind of cool about it? Like all of these things, the colors that they are are reflecting their strategy to control the amount of light coming in to the, al the algae inside. And some of them do it through putting on melanin like we do. It's almost like they suntan, mm. that's what gives them the brown color. Some of them put on these crystals of orange pigment and some of them put on these, these gray crystals that kind of absorb the light. Mm. So it's really fascinating. It's all different strategies for basically making sure that their little inner greenhouses are just right for their, for their alga living inside. So different, different species can change color? Or do you mean just different, different species have adapted? Different species different. have adapted different ways. Yeah, and a lot of it is chemistry. Yeah. Mm. To, uh, to enable them to survive because, because they're kind of anchored, right? <laughs> Once they pick their spot, they're there for a decade or more. Um, most lichens are kind of on the longer lived spectrum. So they have to be able to control their bodies in order to survive long-term, yeah. right? As they go from that little tiny speck into this, wow, massive charismatic <laughs> megaflora that we see in front of us. Yeah. I feel like a long time ago I was in a like when I was starting to go camping with my parents, I feel like there were lichens on rocks and mm -hmm. we were told like, if you stepped on them, you were wiping out like That's a century <laughs> of growth or something. Is that, is that true? I mean, it could be true. <laughs> there are um, uh, what we call the belly button lichens. So they attach with like a belly button and then they're, they, they can get as big as a dinner plate. They're quite amazing in some areas, yeah. Um, and so yes, some of them can be very old and you're wiping them out, but I've, I've walked through if, if you're in a habitat that's big enough and expansive enough, another way of looking at that is you're helping the lichen to move around. <laughs> they can't, you know, they, can, they can't really do it on their own. They, they require wind or water or mm. us to step on them, fragment them and move them around. So on a small scale, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> it's when we have, you know, too much happening um, to the right. point where they can't recover or you're, you're just disturbing the habitat too much for them to, to reestablish. And you can actually really see this in, in city parks. Some of my favorite city parks are very likened to Pauperate because they're so popular. Mm. Like you can just tell that there are children running through the underbrush and climbing the trees. Um, and that is so mm. important. But when we don't have enough of those spaces, yeah. There's not enough time, there's not enough infrastructure for the lichens and, and the kids, right? And so I just feel like 
we're not quite there. We still need more of these wild spaces for everything. Yeah. As we move down to the edge of the creek, we continue to talk about this idea with the whole gang. The idea that the natural spaces we love, we slowly destroy the more we use them. It's a real problem that all conservationists have to wrestle with. I think for me, it just speaks to how hungry we are for these areas too. And that's why it always makes me a bit sad when we have to close them. Not a bit sad. It makes me very sad because it's doing the exact opposite of what we want. But we, I understand why the balance has to be there. But to me, I just feel like we need, we need more of these areas, right? We need more pockets like this. And they don't have to be, as we've discussed, huge but they, they need to be all over the city. They need to be accessible to, to people everywhere. And boy, we put a lot of funding into building beautiful playgrounds, you know, with very manicured surroundings for kids. But I think with less funding, we could be building more wild spaces for kids and take some of the pressure off, yeah. off fewer, you know, protected areas by having more absolutely wild spaces i i am absolutely in for that that is probably what i think all of us at eelt would be a preferred way to protect natural spaces is simply to have more of them mm -hmm. and if you have all, the same number of people spread out over more area yeah. you're going to reduce that impact yeah. um, and then everybody gets access to those spaces and the spaces are protected for wildlife and for plants and for other things so absolutely that is the best the best thing that could be done um, and that's something we're working on and I think the different levels of government are working on uh, and just the, the more we can protect the better as far as mm -hmm. as far as mm -hmm. I can see so we're, yeah. quite, we're quite blessed in Edmonton I live in an older neighborhood right so we have fairly small houses on on big lots and you can do wondrous things you know as you as you discovered you were in Kyla's magical backyard and just imagine if there were blocks of that instead of blocks of mowed lawns right the lichens would be happier. I think the kids would be happier. <laughs> you know, um, I've I've had friends over to my yard, which is um, has like a very small piece of, of lawn still there, and it's it's I'm naturalizing it with clover, naturalizing. Um, but uh, I've I've had friends say, oh, I love this landscape with all of these trees and fruit shrubs and stuff, but I I don't want to do anything like this until my kids are older because I want them to have the lawn to play on. And I always think, like, there there's a school of some sort within walking distance of, of most houses where there is a trim lawn, a sports field and stuff like that, and a playground that's way better than anything you could have in your backyard. And when little kids and older kids come to my yard, they get lost in and around the shrubs, they're hiding, they're playing, mm -hmm. and it is so much richer of an environment for them than just a mowed lawn in the backyard. So yeah. our, our thinking is kind of just, you know, we get, we get stuck in the box thinking, the lawn thinking. <laughs> We definitely have more rabbits, magpies, and squirrels. We naturalized our front yard about four years ago. And coyotes. There's a coyote living and next coyote door to living you. Not far. So, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is fun, but we are like there's maybe three yards in our 40 house region, you know, that are like that. And I just I, I have this vision of if the entire neighborhood was like that, how magical it would be, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't take away from these places, but I think it would just take off some of the pressure so Absolutely. that the other 99% of species that we protect these for could, could enjoy it a little bit it's more undisturbed. Awesome. But I mean, one of the questions you had was, you know, do you think we could have a, a protected area for lichens? Or, yeah. or just, you know, just the kind of the, the reasons that drive us, right? Like, yeah. um, and I was talking to Trevor about like this chicken and the egg thing, right? Like we can, we can 
name something a bird sanctuary because people like birds. Um, but are we making a bird sanctuary because people like birds or do people like birds because there are bird sanctuaries? And so, you know, if that's the case, if we had a lichen sanctuary, could we breed a generation of lichen peepers? Um, yeah, I do think you're correct. I think because they're... We've had a few lichen walks in the city and they have sold out. <laughs> I put that in quotes because we try to keep them pretty small. But there's definitely an interest out there. And, you know, it's really, really fun to introduce kids to all the weird and wacky and fun shaped lichens that are right under our noses. So let's try it, Kyla. Mm -hmm. Also, um, if, if there was a lichen, like parks are named, like we're in the Larch Sanctuary, right? More <laughs> dynamic named which has larger, no larger organism but it has a lot of lichens so maybe we could just switch that starts with l yeah. could be mm. yeah yeah you'll have to talk to the city about All it right, it might take we'll a little while but i'm not against it <laughs> but what would, what would be what would be a good lichen name for a park peltidra park has the like yeah, onomatopoeia is that what it is <laughs> what is it when you do the p -p 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 the same sound? alliteration, alliteration. alliteration yeah. jeez grade eight <laughs> yeah i think peltidra park has a nice ring to it and Edmonton has some really special Peltigras, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, it's say it together. Peltigra Park. Peltigra Park. Are we selling it, Trevor? <laughs> Give it one. We need a good catchy. Like. One, two, three. Peltigra Park. <laughs> Welcome to Peltigra Park. Well, well, we'll test it on the podcast and see what happens. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> Get people to vote. Yeah. Do you want to see a Peltiger Park in Edmonton? <laughs> I'll give you some really beautiful images of Peltiger to help see the conversation. <laughs> okay. And so, with potential advertising jingles dancing through our heads, we head back and out of the forest, out of the larchless larch sanctuary. They are back out of the woods. On the manicured park on the edge of the subdivision, Kyla and Elliot have a final moment for reflection on our little outing. <laughs> so Kyla, we went into the Larch Sanctuary and uh, we, we, we searched for lichens. We found a lot of them. We also talked about you know, what types of spaces are worthy of conservation as parks. Um, so how, how are you feeling after this little outing? I, I feel very stimulated by all of the conversation and the ideas and thoughts. I love that. Um, uh, and and I, one of the things I'm taking away is that there, there is a real need for and, and an increase in the different types of conservation spaces, park spaces there are. And if there is a conservation space, there are going to be lichen there. Yeah, yeah Elliot, what did you think of all the lichens? Good. Good. What was the what was the coolest life form we saw today? A beaver. What's so cool about the beaver? It's that we got to see it again and again and again and again and again. Was that your first beaver? In the, Maybe. In the wild? Maybe? You know when we when we first went in to the to the woods, um, Elliot and I were walking ahead of you guys, and I was point I pointed out a couple of little things to you on the ground. Uh -huh. Do you remember? And then like you said, "Yeah." And what did you say? This would be a great place to 
go mushroom hunting. Oh yeah. And 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 Elliot didn't mean to pick the mushrooms, but just to find mushrooms. <laughs> so I was like, I'm not the only person who's looking at little things. It's true. It's true. And actually, so Elliot has a book about mushroom hunting mm-hmm. by Elise Gravel. Oh, I and, love her. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe there, and I, I mean. She doesn't even like to eat mushrooms, so... <laughs> um, yeah, maybe there's something to the fact that if we can do a little outreach, we can t- teach people to value these little... the little non-human, non-charismatic life forms. Yeah, I think it has the capacity to bring us a lot of joy because they're the little things that you can find very close to where you live, no matter where you live. And there's just so, so much magic there to be found once you know how to look for it. Thank you for listening. Let's Find Out is a proud partner of Taproot Edmonton, a local journalism initiative that is doing fascinating, curiosity-driven, thoughtful reporting in our city. If you want to support Let's Find Out, well, become a Taproot member. For just $10 a month or $100 a year, you can help ensure everyone continues to have free access to Let's Find Out and other podcasts like Bloom and Speaking Municipally. Plus, you'll get the rest of Taproot's coverage of city, council, food, arts, tech, and the like. Learn more at taprootedmonton.ca slash join. This episode was produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and Chris Changyan Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line, chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our past episodes on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Thank you to this month's guests, Kyla Tichkowski, Megan Jacklin, Diane Hoagland, and Elliot Cosman. Original music by the lovely Doug Hoyer. Thanks to everyone who supported the podcast. Until next time, keep your questions coming.